BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, it was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The new novel Chain Gang All-Stars is as bloody as Mortal Kombat the video game and as tender as a mother's speech at her child's funeral. Nana Kwame Ajebrenya's debut novel takes place in a world of pain, reality TV, blood points, influencers, sponsorship, and solitary confinement. This is America, and in this America there are people forced into dehumanizing conditions battling it out for survival. In the book's universe, imprisoned people can choose to become gladiators, facing near-certain death in tightly scripted battles and a lottery ticket's chance of high freedom. Chain Gang All-Stars is dark and loving, concerned with justice and spectacle. It's good. We talk with the author after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. You know, you know you have an interesting book on your hands when you start to catalog references and you find yourself writing down Jennifer Egan and Octavia Butler, Quentin Tarantino and Bell Hooks, Michelle Alexander, and that supercut video of reality TV stars saying, I'm not here to make friends. Reading Nana Kwame Ajebrenya's new novel, Chain Gang All-Stars, is more than anything a clarifying experience. Like, what if you look into a funhouse mirror and realize, oh, the world is so distorted, so bent by power and violence, that only a contorted piece of glass can actually show you how the world is. Welcome to the show, Nana. Thank you so much for this book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited. Yeah. Why don't you explain a little bit more about the world that you've built here? Like, how does it work? Yeah, so the world of Chain Gang All-Stars is a world in which convicted wards of state can opt out of a sentence of at least 25 years and participate in death matches. And sort of the draw of this is if they survive three years in this blood sport, they get clemency, they're freed. And the book really follows particularly two women who are sort of at the apex of this sport as um, one of them is in the last two weeks in her tenure as a member. Yeah, and that's... 
Loretta Thurwer. And you're going to read us a little bit about sort of the introduction. This is the beginning of the book, right as we're meeting Loretta. Yeah. I'm going to read from the Not Prologue, which is what I call it because I once did a survey on Twitter asking people, you guys definitely read the prologue when it appears <laughs> in a book, right? And to my dismay, the answers were varied. They skipped the ahead. Oh, man. To those right. people I ask you, do, when you listen to music, do you start the song 37 seconds in? <laughs> Please read the book. Anyways, <laughs> this not prologue. It's called The Freeing of Melancholia Bishop. I'll read just, just a little bit of the beginning. She felt their eyes. All those executioners. Welcome, young lady, said Mickey Wright, the premier announcer for Chain Gang All-Stars, the crown jewel in the Criminal Action Penal Entertainment Program. Why don't you tell us your name? His high boots were planted in the turf of the battleground, which was long and green, stroked with cocaine white hash marks, like a divergent football field. It was Super Bowl weekend a fact that Wright was contractually obligated to mention between every match that evening. You know my name. She noticed her own steadiness and felt a dim love for herself. Strange. She'd counted herself wretched for so long. But the crowd seemed to appreciate her boldness. They cheered, though their support was edged with a brutal irony. They looked down on this black woman, dressed in the gray jumpsuit of the incarcerated. She was tall and strong, and they looked down on her. In the tight coils of black hair on her head, they looked down gleefully. She was about to die. They believed this the way they believed in the sun and the moon and the air they breathed. Mm. Yeah. That was uh, Nane Kwame Ajay Brenya reading just the beginning of his debut novel, Chain Gang, all-stars. You know, this book really does center on the loving relationship between two of these, you know, people playing in death matches. Um, why did you want to kind of center this sort of loving relationship even within this obviously cruel world? It's a, it's a great question. I feel as though love despite is kind of what the book is about. Mm. Love even, you know, mm -hmm. uh, this pretty like intense circumstances that these links find themselves in. But also, I think um, for many reasons, we all find ourselves in really difficult circumstances. And the book tries its best to connect some of the harshnesses that appear in this sort of speculative space to those that exist right now. And um, it just felt really important that uh, love and not only romantic love, but romantic love, as well as just communal love, community uh, be an important pillar in this book because in many ways love and compassion and a willingness to hold compassion despite terrible circumstances for everyone is uh, really what the book is trying to like push for I think at its heart. Yeah, yeah I mean it's interesting because these, these concepts is kind of dehumanization and yet there's humans still, right? These are still people, um, are kind of revolve around each other in the reality TV show that these people for, are, are forced to be a part of. Yeah. And yeah, the, we basically have a system now, even in our real lived world, where humanity can be assigned or unassigned. Um, we know that slavery is explicitly protected in the case of um, so-called criminals. 
And so um, I think the book is really considering, okay, if, 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 if we have a government that is saying at any time our humanity can be, you know, is up for debate, uh, what are the sort of extreme poles that that idea can be pushed towards? And so, you know, if, if, if someone can be, is a slave, you can make them do anything. And we see that because of what prisoners are subjected to in real life. And this book is just a, a reimagining, but while keeping that same paradigm of thought. Yeah. You know, this, what they end up calling this gladiatorial combat is hard action sport. And I was wondering about kind of your relationship to the sports that bear a resemblance to this. I mean, the obvious one is MMA, but really lurking throughout this, and even in the first passage you read, football is right there. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I'm, a fa- I'm a fan of sports. I love, like, the beauty and craft of people growing with not only their bodies but their minds in in the context of a sport. I played sports growing up, um, and there's a lot of beauty in whether it's, um, you know, fight sports like boxing or MMA and even in football. But that said, I think um, the nature of our, our in our celebrity culture and just our culture in general, we're really used to consuming people and things as if you know endlessly and there's something harsh that comes with the consumer nature of sports like football and in mma as well uh and i wanted to sort of shine a light on that especially when you consider the nfl how in battle they've been over recent years and how like it's a it's a it's a sort of a battleground for a political battleground and that that is um sort of been that's been shown in so many different ways but i yeah my relationship to sports is that it's it's complicated because i used to be super into it but now it's kind of hard for me Mm -hmm. to engage i mean i'm a knicks fan we just so like you know (laughs) now you're back in now you're like actually sports are good uh (laughs) i mean not well we just got eliminated so i'm sort of like you know what sports are bad again no (laughs) but uh i i i think sports are beautiful i think the consumer culture around it makes things really harsh and dark and this again is sort of that extreme end of that right like even if it's the genius of the you know mind body connection the consumption process kind of does something to that genius right it doesn't exist just on its own it literally it doesn't exist on its own and also it it's to the detriment of the those involved we see players forced to push way beyond their body's limits we see them degraded actively on the internet and in the on the fields we see them treated as though they our machines Mm -hmm. and the sort of in American context anyways, we often think, well, it's okay because they're getting paid a lot, but is it, you know? And so, um, Mm -hmm. it's, it's sort of complicated. Then of course we had in 2016, like famously we have in the football space when the CBA was coming up and Colin Kaepernick was trying to use his platform to speak Mm to, uh, police, police brutality and the extrajudicial murder of black people, how, um, immediately and swiftly and completely, he was sort of drummed out of the league. Exactly. Yeah. We're talking with Nana Kwame Ajebrenya about his novel, Chain Gang All-Stars. You know, we want to know, have you changed the way that you've thought about football, MMA, boxing, some of these sports that have violence as a part of what it is that they are? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. 
You know, the other kind of fascinating thing about this world that you've built, and we're, we're going to get into some of its uh, particular cruelties after the break, but that even in this world, there are like farmer's markets, right? There's still like goats you can go pet. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about kind of trying to like build both sides of this world. Absolutely. I think it's a, a great observation. I think that uh, sort of the, I don't know, niceties and great amenities of our of our world and the comforts are like actually a necessity to the great horrors that exist right on the other side of certain walls. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in America especially, we sort of fall in love with our comforts and it we kind of guard them uh, with like our, our lives. And the removal of those comforts is like the ultimate punishment, but it's also like we sort of feel as though uh, we can, I, I think that we can sort of be blinded by them. Can we always be like, well, things aren't that bad because I have this and that and that. Mm-hmm. While we know people are being tortured for sure. And so in this world, I think it would be required actually that um, some people are living in relative comfort. Things are sort of copacetic, you know, mm-hmm. there's farmer's markets. And right on the other side of that is some, this bloody enterprise because that is also what happens right now. Was there a time or a place, I, I can think of a few in my life, where the, the, the line between those worlds or the veil between those worlds kind of fell away for you? Between like the, the, the sort of... Between my, that kind of brutal life and the kind of comfort life. Absolutely. I mean, so for me, I a big part of my work, I feel like that I kind of anxiety in my in my work, especially my first book, was like then how closely you can have or not have something, and how it can make you feel. The first book is called Friday Black, which of, which is a sort of, and mm-hmm. in the, in the the story, the titular story. I like to use that word because I learned at a conference once, and I feel <laughs> it makes me sound smart. The titular story uh, was around um, Black Friday, and so again, Black Friday is the day where people are, you know, it's the biggest consumer day. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone wants their whether it's their TV or their jackets, and I've seen with my own self people fighting for jeans. Mm-hmm. So again, it's this com- this discomfort thing, this thing that doesn't even matter. These jeans, I used to work at a store called Stephen Barry's. There, Sarah Jessica Parker had a jeans line. And people were really fighting for them. Wow. And we had those jeans all the time. But on that day, it's like we had to get it. And so that and, and and not to mention all the places where people were literally trampling humans to death for TVs. So, you yeah. know, that's a place where that's true. Yeah. We're talking with Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya about his new novel, Chain Gang All Stars, his first book that he was just talking about was the story collection, Friday Black. We'd love to hear from you. I mean, what's a work of satire that made you realize something about a system that you didn't know or fully grasp before you read or saw it? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Nana Kwame Ajibrenya about his novel Chain Gang, All Stars. Nana, I wanted to talk a little bit about the kind of craft of speculative fiction here. You yeah. know, the, the ways... I, why don't you talk about, for example, how you build out something like the wrist chain. So talk about how they work and then talk about how, how you come to build that kind of device. So the speculative space for me is, is, fun, is a place where I can have a lot of fun because I get to like sort of flex my creative muscles. But I think it's useful because I can use what's familiar, but also make something hard to reduce. So it gives me this power to oscillate between the familiar and the fantastic really easily. And that just feels useful. So in the case of the, you said the magnet cuffs. Yeah. Yeah. And so in the case of the handcuffs, um, in this book, rather than just the sort of regular handcuff that goes over the top of your wrist, um, the links, which is the name of the participants in this blood sport, are surgically implanted with uh, what's called magna cuffs, made by a company called Arctech, which appears many times over in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're surgically implanted with this thing that makes their, their, it's as if they're wearing a handcuff all the time, which can be activated or deactivated through magnetic force. And so when I'm thinking about that, why would that be useful? One, I need physically... Um, my the participants to be able to move freely a lot, and I don't need to. I don't want to go through the choreography of they're unlocking their 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 mm-hmm. handcuff. They're re they're putting them back in. They put that just feels sloppy to me, or like feels choppy. But more importantly, more importantly than, to me, I want to sort of demonstrate that in the future, as technological technology always advances, without a moral ethical advance, this kind of thing would be on the table. Also, it suggests that they're they're um their uh, bondage is, is slightly more ab- absolute. Mm-hmm. It's invisible, but always present. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of symbolically, it's a part of them, literally. And so once I have this, it really builds from this character, Thurwar. Okay, I have this character, Thurwar. What's What does she look like? She's She has shaved head, and on her wrist are these forever symbols that are like grafted into her bones mm-hmm. that also have a mechanical use. So for me, it's like, what are the mechanical uses of the thing? And then also, once I think about how does the, the fact of the mechanical reality speak to the values and ethic of the space. And so with with the speculative stuff, I can have fun with thinking about many versions of that. Yeah. I mean, these uh, handcuffs that you've created, they have a particularly cruel mode in, I think it's blue, right? It can keep people silent. Like they get shocked if they say anything. And one of the things that you do in this book on a craft level two is you'll, you like footnote, uh, things that are happening in this world. Some of those footnotes relate to the speculative world you've created, and some of them are from our own world. So, can you talk about you know that silent experiment and yes, uh, and how you built that out? It's another one. I feel like this one was the one that made me feel this and, and George Stinney as well were the two points that made me decide for sure I will do footnotes because, to be honest, initially I'm sort of like. I'm not the type of reader who loves footnotes, and I could talk about why later on. But um, there's a, like you said, there's a mode. So these 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 um, mag- magnetic handcuffs, which are called mag cuffs, which can are inside you, 
uh, have different modes. Two lines might mean this type of bondage. Three lines might be like this absolute, you can't move at all. Blue could mean you can move, but you can't, if you make a sound, you'd be shocked with electricity. And I got the, I got inspired by that when I was doing my research on the prison systems by the Auburn system, a real system uh, founded in New York, where uh, prison uh, absolute silence, twenty four hour silence was enforced in mm-hmm. the in the physical space of the prison and in, in the case of the prisoners, and it was thought it would make them better workers. It probably like separate them from their sense of selves, which is their criminal selves. And this was real. This really happened. They were forced to be in absolute silence. And I think about all the different strange cruelties that exist in the prison space and that one just felt particularly shocking to me Mm. um no pun intended and so i felt like uh i just had to include it because i would have never known if i had not done the research yeah i mean where did your kind of emergent sense about how the penal system work like there's a lot of different entry points that people have i think into figuring out this is how prisons really work this is how solitary confinement works this is how just this this is the ideas that underlie uh, this system. Where was it for you that you started to get purchase on it? I think, I mean, it's, it's so hard because there's probably things I'm not super aware of, but I think the part that's most, I feel cognizant, like the seed, the germination, like the, like the initial seed of the whole thing was my father happened to be a defense attorney when he was alive. And I remember pretty clearly the first time he told me uh, I was probably between 10 and 12 that he was um, defending someone who had committed murder. And I remember thinking like, oh, I guess my dad's a villain. He's helping a bad guy. And that's sort of the way we were taught to think as uh, as children, especially good, bad, bad guy goes in jail. Simple. Mm-hmm. And I remember my father telling me uh, as I sort of not protested, but whatever I said, which was sort of like a thinly veiled protest against him doing that kind of work. He said, it's not that simple. And so I think that desire for nuance and being able to identify responses to problems that are totally without nuance is is not I don't want to say it's just natural because it's a muscle you build but for a writer it feels very almost innate. Um and so I think that was like an initial seed but then of course I was in college when Trayvon Martin was murdered I think along with many other people what was like a general like haha cynicism or skepticism of the criminal justice system became more like a really sharp, deep cynicism. And uh, as I start to get informed following that cynicism, it grew into something different, which was more like a strong desire for us to sort of, I don't know, rise to what I think is a better potential, a better destiny, a better reality, a better a better something than uh, just throwing people in cages. Did you ever get a chance to go back to your father and talk to him or was he gone before you felt like this level of consciousness was in you? No, I, um, I, I, I suddenly got to talk to him. So he passed just a little bit after my first book came out in, um, 2019. And by then I was, I worked on chain gang all stars, uh, for like about seven years. So I'd been working on it. I thought it was going to be a book, a short story in my first book. Um, and so when he was really sick, like in the hospital, I remember basically, I mean, he, I don't know if he, I know he wasn't as far down the line as I am, which is to say I'm an abolitionist and I don't really believe that prison as it currently exists should exist uh, at all. And it's really, I think that we can reinvest in communities and, and, and spaces in a totally different way and change our paradigm of viewing each other. But I, I, yeah, I did get to talk to him about these ideas and 
he's sort of more the where I think most people are, most sort of liberal, progressive-ish people are, uh, where they're like, you know, that's great, but they're sort of scared. And like, there's a whole bunch of people who absolutely need to be in prison, and um, and it's not even. And so yeah, so I got to talk to him about these ideas, and it was kind of cool to, as I got more, uh, you know, I did more research and started like pulling case law, getting to be able to talk to him about things a little bit more specifically mm-hmm. i mean to to pick up one of the earlier threads connected to what you were just saying i mean in this book between the characters there is this struggle with kind of the ethics of like the quote-unquote bad guy you know what to do with murderers or people who've raped people and yeah you you I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't want to give too much away from the book, but you kind of leave it unresolved in the book about how what your answer is to those questions. Yeah, it's uh, the 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 thing I often say with fiction is it gets complicated for any one person to try to present like the answer, mm-hmm. uh, especially if it's like a policy <laughs> systematic like. This is what we all should do to fix the problem of crime. You know, no individual can give you that. There is, I mean, there are some answers that I can offer, but really it's it's more uh, high-level questions. And the primary one being, do you think this is good enough? Based on all these facts I'm presenting you, do you feel that this is effective? Do you think we can do better than this? And then as a community, hopefully we we can come up with better answers. But in terms of the, like, sort of, if there are any answers, it's more about the personal thing, which is, I think that our carceral state and our carceral state of mind suggests that each of us has a humanity that's negotiable, and a, uh, a will and that and like if we extrapolate from that, it means that our ability to love ourselves is conditional, and that's the part where I'm trying to think, hopefully, trying to offer something like an answer where it's like that's something we as individuals can interrogate. And what happens when we start to, to believe that our own individual um, humanity is not negotiable? What happens when we really actually love ourselves no matter what? You know, I think something else can happen. Hmm. You know, let's talk a little bit about the way that love, the, both the word and sort of the practice, are are used in this book. Um, it's I, I think for some people it could be disconcerting when you've got, you know, Hurricane Stacks, who's one of these gladiators, just telling people she loves them and kind of moving through these kind of grisly battle scenes talking about love in ways that feel like quite theoretically sophisticated i would say or something i don't know exactly what it is they feel they they feel quite powerful both maybe because of the violence but also in spite of it talk to me about how you thought about what she was doing well yeah i think that Stacks in particular is really trying to be a vessel and conduit for like uh, adding love to this loveless space. She is also uh, a victim of the system. So every time, I mean, the way I think about Stacks thinking about her matches is, and really how I think about every single one of the chain game matches, even if someone does the violence, there was a gun to their head. They had no choice. They were forced to do it. Um, and so she's sort of saying, even though I'm forced to do this, I hope you know that I, I loved you and I do love you even as I'm doing this thing, which is very different from mm. the sort of cold, I'm killing you just because or whatever. Mm. And she also really cares for the last thing that these people to hear is that they are loved. So um, 
to she she's really trying to live in this love space but of course like as you're saying this there is like sort of a contradiction there just because of the fact of the violence which she struggles with i think it's a, i think it's actually that sort of um incongruity between what she thinks and what she's forced to do is kind of tearing her apart hmm. we're talking with nana kwame ajebrenya about his novel chain gang all stars his first book was the celebrated story collection friday black We'd love to hear your thoughts if you want to join the conversation about the correctional system and our prisons in this country. Or, you know, what's your relationship with violent entertainment of all kinds? There's so much in our in our culture. Um, you can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can join the conversation by sending us an email, forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. You know, one of the things about the the battle scenes in this book is that they're rendered uh, with fidelity. You know, you don't just say like, and then this person died. Yeah. Right. They are the kind of battle scenes that you would wa- you would see cinematically. Yes. Um, was that important for you to render those scenes? And did, did you feel, I don't know, did you feel conflicted yeah. about providing that kind of entertainment? Yeah, it's a... Uh, so I, I felt conflicted more like on the theoretical, theoretical level before even getting to it. When I'm really writing it, you kind of get into this more mechanical mode where I'm really just in the sentences trying to make sure like everything feels true, true in like the sort of like builder sense that they're going, that they're smooth and connecting well. Um, in writing, in text, in prose, action sequences are hard to represent. And I think the writer in me, the craft person in me, like does actually relish in the like, I would like this challenge. I like this challenge, yeah. And I don't think many people try even try for it. Writing is very good at representing interiority, that is like the thoughts of people. But it's a lot more difficult to represent like action. Someone swung a hammer across their their chest and then someone else ducked. But then even ducked it might be a little bit too um vague so i'll be i'll say they hinge at the hip and their torso mm-hmm. slid forward and you know i like getting into that nitty-gritty of the finite moments of movement the reason why i felt it was important was because that is their craft in by force third war stacks and the rest of the links that's what they do excuse me and i'm saying that these people are good and i have to demonstrate that they're good at this thing they became good at this terrible thing so i felt like i had to demonstrate it as opposed to just saying um someone want to fight but also every fight to me that appears in the book is not just is it's not just violence it's a conversation between people i think that's like maybe even more obvious in the first fight the not prologue mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there's something happening besides besides um people hurting each other there's a there's a con there's a a uh, conversation between the, each other and a conversation between the participants in the crowd and them in the world it's there's many different conversations that are happening. So the violence of, and the fact that the violence is important, but it's also all these other ways of speaking and doing and existing that are that felt like I had to represent them because it isn't really just about them fighting each other. Mm. I mean, in that, doesn't it put you in the position of sort of the game master uh, in, in this book, though, too? Because you are crafting the scenes to match the narrative yeah. that you're that you're building i am the game i i am every character every character perspective that's represented in this book like i am mm-hmm. that's just how it is to write and i remember reading like i've read books that are completely pro-prison to to get into that attitude 
Um, so yes, I am that person in those moments, but I'm also the stacks too. Uh, the when you're writing a book, you have to be able to have, especially when you're having a poly poly vocal book like this with all these um different perspectives. You have to be willing to fully inhabit. Uh, these perspectives and even the, the even more complicated and challenging part is is even try to hold love for those perspectives as well because mm. you got some nasty people in here too i mean even yeah. like among you know the different folks here they've all done the things that were wrong and they all kind of acknowledge that but then you've got you know like the clan guys for example yep and I think the the eraser to eraser triplets <laughs> almost <laughs> give a little spoiler there, and um, the eraser triplets and um, Gunny Puddles. I was talking about this the mm-hmm. other day. Gunny Puddles is a ra- racist. Um, he's done all the bad things that you can imagine, all the worst things. And there's a chapter from his perspective. And again, my idea is that even the worst of us, and we all know this too, we're. Like there was an inflection point. Something happened. Mm-hmm. My sort of idea is that people are good and we have a love the society that crafts many of us into a, administers of harshness and suffering. Mm. But so even this guy, Gunny Puddles, we discover he grew up being abused by a father who happened to be in um, in um, corrections or was a police officer, which statistically um, people in law enforcement have a higher chance of uh, being involved in this domestic abuse. And, you know, his mother abandoned his family and he's holding a heart with a lot of pain. I'm not saying he's going to be like my best friend because he's, and I don't you know, he's a super, a terrible, uh, by all accounts and purposes, he's a terrible person. But in writing Including him, his own. Yeah, yeah he kind of, he, he, he's totally fine with it. He's unrepentant. But I, my attitude is this person, what chance did he have to be something other than this? You know, he had very little. And even him, I have to be willing to extend some grace, if not for him, but for me. Because, again, that's the, the, the again, the, that carceral state of mind that I'm talking about is that it's a, it's a kind of poison that's in the water that tricks us to thinking, you know what? If you do this much stuff, you're less human. And how many times can you do that before you start doing that to yourself? And so it really was the exercise of this, the exercise of this book was getting to fully inhabit the idea, that belief that your humanity and everyone's humanity is not negotiable and holding grace regardless. We're talking with Nana Kwame Ajebrenya about his novel Chain Gang All-Stars. We're going to get to some calls and comments after the break. If you want to join the conversation, you can talk to us about your relationship with violent entertainment, whether that's MMA, movies, video games. What do you do you think it's doing something to you, if anything at all? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Maybe you're a participant, not just a watcher. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. 
Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the book Chain Gang All-Stars with its author Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. Got some uh, comments. Uh, Listener Elizabeth writes, Voltaire's Candide was a satire that helped me at a young age to question why people of wealth had power and how they felt righteous in making government decisions. Mm. But the narrator was so smart and interesting that you thought, hey, maybe other people in society who did not have wealth might have lots of wisdom uh, to contribute to. Um, let's go also, uh, right to the phones. Let's go to Dan in Windsor. Welcome, Dan. Hello. Um, yeah, I was very interested in the, the book and also the, uh, topic. And, um, one thing comment about, you know, the NFL and I've been a big football fan and also played, but it was interesting. The effect of playing a, a game like that, where you've got a certain level of violence, but there's, there's rules. And you stay within the rules. And one thing that's come up when they discuss the violence or, um, you know, danger mm-hmm. of football is the whole idea of sportsmanship. And so that you know what the line is. You know, mm-hmm. if you're going in to engage someone, tackle or block, you know there's a line, certain things you do and then you don't do. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I, I'm not I'm not having read the book. I'm not sure how that applies. To yeah, the let me. I, I think I can connect it for you, Dan, just because. Um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that call. And thanks for that that idea. I mean, I, I definitely grew up with that with that idea of playing football. Um, but I was thinking just the other day, I was out running, and I had a flash of a memory from when I was literally 15 years old. Uh, a guy came around uh, running back, and I was playing outside linebacker, and I hit this kid. So remember his name, John Minders. He's so hard, and it was like the kind of hit where you people just start screaming. Mm. And I looked down, and his like nose was like bleeding a little bit. And I helped him up, and you know he kind of went back, clearly like hurt by the thing. And I was just thinking, man, just the memory of that violence now, uh, mm. it feels like poison. It really does. Even though it was fully within the bound, ba- you know, I did exactly what I was supposed to do. Well, first off, shout out to Dan. Great question. Great like comment. And um, I think I it's hard because there is like if, when everyone's agreeing and everyone's consenting, there is probably something like useful, even even with the violence of having been exposed to that in a context that is controlled and maybe hopefully healthy. And like you said, a important part of what you said is you helped him back up right after, you know, but even in the context of the NFL, there's a bunch of rules. But when the stakes are made to feel so high, we know about people we know about like I don't know if you remember what Sean what's his name, Sean Payton. And like the the hit lists they had, like the mm-hmm. the bounties. I remember when that happened. I feel like that should have been a much bigger scandal because supposedly, yeah, it's all it's all good, it's sportsmanship. But at this, you can't see my face. I'm making like a side eye at that because we know for <laughs> sure what happened. They put they had a hit out on Brett Favre, take him out the game, huge star in the game. They were like, take him out, and now, so where's the sportsmanship there? So there are rules, but at the same time, it's like, huh. And again, we can't. We also can't pretend we can't. We don't see a correlation between like the massive, massive, massive like 
uh, sort of propensity for NFL players to uh, commit abuse outside of the game and all these other things. So violence is a hard thing to contain, and it's important to acknowledge violence as such. And I think that there is probably something useful and helpful in like having these simulated systems, which violence is a part of it, but also sportsmanship is key. But mm. I think if you don't, or if you aren't really vigilant about that, things get dicey really quick. Yeah, you know, I I guess I. I want to follow up on that a little bit. I mean, can those lines be maintained? Like once you start to unleash some of those forces, especially, I mean, one of the things that I think you do so well in this book is the interiority of these, you know, gladiators as they go into the arena and the crowd and everyone around them, the voices, the way that the excitement of what's happening, even as all these other ethical things that you've been talking about for the rest of the show are happening for them. They're also just getting pumped, you yeah. know? It's it's very tough because there's like an adrenal human thing there. But in again, in some ways, like the managing of that, the understanding of that, I could I can imagine a place that can be that could be healthy. I mean, I say all this because I don't want to <laughs> think that like my stance is that football or, or such things can exist healthily. Cause like, I, I like to hope that they can, but I think again, once the money's involved, once uh, these are super reductive attitudes and consumer attitudes towards, towards athletes is it goes unchecked. It gets very difficult to sustain a kind of ethical and useful morally uh, uh, attitude towards these um, different sports Mm. so listener mike writes in to say how does your book speak to different views of masculinity i feel that being hard in prison or context parts are the quote epitome of masculinity for better or for worse it's a great question i feel like uh the character rico morita in the book was like really struggling with this Mm -hmm. um yeah i feel like unfortunately a lot of the way things that masculinity guess is, is exhibited in our mind's eye is through violence and domination and ability to like crush others and win in these like sort of zero sum kind of attitudes. And I think that part of why the protagonists of this book, the two main ones are women, but there's others, but the two primary protagonists are women is that they can hold some of those, ideas which we identify often as masculine but also there's another piece too which is um the care and community and being willing to sort of like um be they literally call third word the blood mother in some way in some parts of the book so yeah the the the, the book tries to think through those things and I, as, a, as a man myself i feel like i am very clear about how much I'm praised as a child and even growing up for like times where I'm being a force and mm. pushing down others and that whole thing. And it's again, something that unchecked becomes terrible. I mean, what's your process of unlearning some of those things been like? Uh, therapy is big. Uh, <laughs> I do therapy. Um, learn like thinking, like being exposed to people, listening when people tell me like, Hey, this is a thing that you do. Mm-hmm. Um, I got two sisters and I feel like, um, and, and they're both very different, but I think being between them and the middle kid um, has helped me also like, I don't know, dispel some ideas about what it, like men can do or what women can't do or whatever. But um, also being a reader, being like a really active reader has helped me 
learn and think through some of these ideas that you hold that are just almost innate to you. You mentioned bell hooks earlier and people like bell hooks or Audre Lorde also like have given me access to ideas that I'd be like, huh, I didn't even realize <laughs> I was harboring that kind of <laughs> not the best attitude. And yeah, so there's a lot of ways to grow and those are just some of them. What about just writing in a woman's voice as you do a lot in this book? Do you think that has helped me? Uh, I think for sure it has. Um, because And it's funny, a lot of people are sort of like, I don't know, like I, th- I think I get almost like undue praise for being willing or able to do that. And they're like, how do you do it? And I'm like, well, you know, a, a woman is kind of like a, this woman happens to be a reasonable, smart, capable person. And <laughs> that's, you know, very possible. I Obviously, like the fact that she's a woman in this context comes with things that I would not necessarily, necessarily be exposed to or some man might not be exposed to. But um, I think really, really spending the time to sit with this woman and not just any woman, but like Thurwar and Stax in particular, and a different woman and other people of other identities and other gender identities in this book. It's just a reminder, uh, like a really personal reminder that everyone is a person full of complexity, full of nuance. They're, every human is a universe unto themselves, and I can treat them as such if I am willing to. You know, uh, listener uh, Deborah writes in, um, I'm re- all these listeners. I know. I love them. I always <laughs> love them. Uh, Deborah writes in to say, I'm a retired school teacher from Oakland who's kept in touch with a former student who's been incarcerated since about 2012. Mm. I thought a lot about his crime as he shot into a car with four teenagers hitting one girl in the head. She survived but is blind in one eye and has some traumatic brain injury. If someone had asked me as a teacher if I could identify students at risk of committing an act of violence, I would have never thought of him. He was a great student. He still is a good person. In that sense, I feel in our written and phone communications that he is truly remorseful. We've talked a lot about forgiveness, restorative justice, and more. But the girl he shot has lifelong injuries. Our society glorifies violence in film and video games and sports. I don't understand why boxing is a sport, the objective being to beat the other person senseless. Sadly, we do not value kindness, generosity, being Mm. gentle. At least it is rarely portrayed in the media and beyond. Yes. Um, that's, it's really, I feel like that, that listener speaking to so many important points, but, and and the thing that I was attaching to besides the really important end, which is how we don't violate gentleness and kindness. And Mm. we really need to is, um, this person is remorseful, but right. But this other thing is still true. And I think our, one of our main sort of touch points with the idea, if we call it abolition, but in general of like restorative justice and all these attitudes towards those who have done harm is, but what about the person who was hurt? Mm-hmm. And again, I, I, for me, I like to think that there's ways to honor harm without causing more harm. And we can grow our capacity to do that. It's a really important point. And something that I think, again, it's not like something that's easy for me. I think it's something I'm still kind of growing into. But the, uh, the idea, okay, this person has been blinded. How long, how many years, like we, and it's almost like a, almost right on the nose to, to bring up Hammurabi. I don't mean to be like, uh, like mm-hmm. sort of flippant at all, right. but like we have that tale for a reason. So what, how do we, how do we honor uh, this person's suffering, which is great and extremely valid and we should um, in a way that helps the world. Um, I think that if we are, really vigilant about it, we can build infrastructure 
that is based in compassion, not just for the person who perpetrated, but for the victim as well. We can we can we can change the paradigm from this eye for an eye thing to excuse me to one that is really based in compassion that actually hopefully builds up uh, our opportunities to stop and intervene in these harms before they happen. And so I think that the prison system as it exists has totally cut their knees, our capacity to respond compassionately to uh, mental health crises, for example. I think the prisoning system has totally cut at the knees, our ability to respond compassionately to addiction issues. We know for sure it um, criminalizes and individualizes problems that are systemic, like poverty. And so if we build infrastructures, because again, abolition is more about adding things, not just snapping your fingers and removing prisons. No, it's more about adding things. How can we add to our infrastructures built from the foundation, from the compassionate standpoint, and maybe we get a chance to create a world where this good kid, as this um, listener said, doesn't have the, doesn't get to the place where they do this terrible thing. And it is a terrible thing. So really, it's a, it's a really important point because, again, like honoring the pain and suffering of people is important. But I think that we can do better than causing pain for the perpetrator. Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that I've really struggled with down this line of of thought and ethics and really but really more practice is just you know uh, recently i was walking on the street and there was a guy shouting very aggressive and violent things at a young woman who was walking past yeah and clearly experiencing uh what we would also call mental health crisis but also in that context the choice was essentially like step between and perhaps be a, a victim of or a perpetrator of violence myself or what you know, and I feel like in that situation, I was able to calm the dude down enough to like just have it be over. But you have to step into the possibility of yourself yeah. needing to be violent if there's no other parties, you know. And I think that's the thing that's always been really hard for me is trying to imagine what what are these systems where that man doesn't have to be like that, you know. Right. Know. Right. And, you know, also like there's like there's like a clear like when there's like an inflection point in their personal life. Sometimes that has to happen. You could have the, you know, there's like a long history of people who still like, if you're talking about monks or something who study compassion, like the Buddhist tradition, who they also study like a big part of things. Some of them might do like a physical martial art as well. It's not that there's never going to be a chance for a physical intervention to ever happen. It's that, I mean, and again, like I commend you for like even being willing to step in at all and then doing something that is useful. But what if we had infrastructure built in where people were trained to do exactly what you just did? As opposed to the standard where we have a number to call where people with guns arrive, you know, like what if like there was like a a, a robust cultural societal community based response to exactly this, the issue you're describing that was built and founded in compassion. I can imagine it. We can I mean, I can start to imagine it. it's almost hard for me because we have so our our standard is so violent. Mm-hmm. Our standard is control, force, violence, fear. What if love and compassion and again, sometimes like, you know, min- and love, compassion, minimizing harm was sort of the standard. So I, I, I 100 percent understand what you're saying. And it's uh, they, the, to me, like, you know, it's really not like no matter what, like whoever's there, just punch me in the face, hit me in the head with like a bat. No, <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're really saying what if we like change our paradigm of thinking and then as a result, our infrastructures mm-hmm. and our ability to build communities reflected that change. Yeah. You know, um, there's one kind of 
last piece of this book that I wanted to address on the ethics side, and one of our listeners, Michael, addresses a piece of it. Can Nana address the issue of crowd morality, like people on their own or in families or amongst neighbors seem mm. to be, quote, more moral than people in kind of anonymous crowds? You really mm. go at this. I, I would say you might not agree with that particular statement. No, um, it's a great point. It's, it really, it's really interesting. So just talk about, you know, the kind of different context for watching this kind of uh, it's so it's such an interesting thing because I think the I the book tries to explore that really a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if there's like some innate human like pack animal thing in us. Uh, we've seen it time and time again, uh, and I think I think of like lynch mobs or mm-hmm. just people outside when the team wins or whatever. Um, there's a fervor that is contagious. And again, I, I yeah, it can and it spreads quickly, and it is hard to contain, extremely hard to contain. And I, I think the 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 listeners right in the nose when they're by themselves, they're very chill. People who would never do things all of a sudden are stomping on people's cars, lighting them on fire. Mm. I think that um, there is there is something to like the sort of communal like. I don't know, chaos that can erupt. I think that if we had more practice of <laughs> of uh, of having community spaces, community-based spaces that were sort of loving, which we actually are building up too, because it works the other way too, as we see with all the movements around, whether it's George Floyd or whoever. That's a, that's a version too. Those are mm-hmm. huge movements built in love. So I guess basically I think the extremes of feeling love, hate, fear are all really strong motivators and in groups they get amplified in really intense ways. And I think we just have to be really smart and try our best. Again, if we if we make compassion and in consideration and minimizing harm the standard, maybe be a little bit easier to stop those sort of massive crowd uh, violences mm-hmm. from getting to the place where they can't mm-hmm. be contained. It's a really good question. Yeah. We've been talking with Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya about his debut novel, Chain Gang All-Stars. His first book was the celebrated story collection, Friday Black. And tonight, you're going to be at the chapel with Green Apple Books, right? You're talking with Tommy Orange? I am with my bro, Tommy Orange. And what time, what, um, what time is that? Seven. <laughs> Look it up. Look it up. The chapel, Tommy Orange. No, no, there. that should be a I want to say it's at seven o'clock, but I could be totally lying. Yeah. Um, this is a really incredible book. I did want to say... 8 o'clock, I lied. It's at 8 o'clock in the chat. 8 o'clock. 8 o'clock is what it is. Um, did want to say one other thing. If you're interested in some of these issues, check out Uncommon Law and Keith Watley. Uh, these issues around what... Violent offenses, as, as they are called. Um, just touches on a lot of these topics on a long and different dimension. Um... Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, thank you so much for joining us this morning. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to all the callers and listeners. It's uh, absolutely been amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Scott Schaefer. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.